Well, if you have Bibles, uh, we are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 25. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that Dana mentioned a few moments ago, page 831 uh, is where you'll find today's text. Uh, Ellen did a great job setting me up for this. I could just kind of call it a day and, um, and go from there. But she even referenced this, um, so let me start with that. As Christians, uh, our first and our primary identity, our primary obligation over and above national citizenship is our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Uh, what the Apostle Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 3, that we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is there. Now, in some ways, um, that will never contradict our citizenship with a particular nation or with a particular state. But what that means is that wherever there is conflict, when there is a contradiction, that as Christians, our allegiance belongs to Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't belong to Jesus Christ, we shouldn't actually be comfortable calling ourselves a Christian. A Christian, by definition, is someone who will forsake all others to be faithful to Jesus. As we're focused on care for, for refugees today, uh, my plea with you pastorally this morning is to, be, is to be someone as a Christian who leads forth in this cultural moment with compassion. With compassion. Not ignoring important discussions about security or respect for the law. Not to be one who throws all caution to the wind, all wisdom to the wind. And certainly not to be someone who, under the facade of compassion, manipulates and exploits refugees and their stories for political power and gain but to be men and women of genuine compassion, men and women who proclaim to our nation and proclaim to our world a lot more loudly than Christians tend to be known for right now. That because Christians themselves are exiles, because we are refugees in this world, we will always be those with open hearts for and appropriately open borders to the sojourner, the exile, the refugee. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? 
Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal judgment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. And so amid all of the changing words of our generation, speak now your eternal word that does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives and to do all of this through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Here's a question for you this morning. As people of mercy and justice in the world, as Christians are called to be, is compassion for other people our obligation or our opportunity? Is it our obligation or is it our opportunity? And the answer is yes. It's both of those things. And so we'll spend the rest of our time looking at those two things. First, let's talk about our obligation to compassion. Matthew 25 uh, is, a, is a fairly well-known teaching of Jesus. Uh, it's less popular of his teachings, and it's probably not hard to figure out why. The content is really sobering. Because the focal point here is not first and foremost compassion and love for the least of these. Before we even get into that, the focus here is that it's about Jesus' final judgment. He's the Son of Man, the one who's been prophesied about all the way back in the book of Daniel. And he's now inheriting his kingdom from God the Father, the one who in Daniel is called the Ancient of Days. And receiving his kingdom, sitting on his glorious throne, as Matthew writes, like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he separates the righteous from the unrighteous. And into his eternal kingdom, he welcomes the righteous, while the unrighteous he sends away, as Matthew writes, to their eternal punishment. It's the basis for this separation that comes sharply into focus during this month focused on mercy and justice issues. The criteria for the judgment, the basis of the separation, as we read, is how people have treated the least of these among Jesus' brothers and sisters. If you were to do a deep dive of study into this passage, you'd find that there's a lot of debate among scholars about, how, about who specifically Jesus is referring to here. Is this just about how we respond to Christians the least of these among Christians, and by extension then if we are receiving or rejecting Jesus? Or is this about how we respond more broadly uh, to all people? The answer is not altogether clear. What is clear and what we, can, what we can bank on together this morning is that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, everything that Jesus says, all of the criteria that he lays out here are commands given to the people of God for how to treat other people indiscriminately. So feed the hungry, give the thirsty drink, clothe the naked. This takes us back to Isaiah chapter 58 where Isaiah writes, Is not this the fast that I choose? To share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. To visit the sick and the imprisoned. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, the author writes, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated with them, because you also share in the body. And then welcoming the stranger. Book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
all of these things, really all of these criteria, fleshes out for us the second half of what's called the great commandment, that we are to be people as Christians who love our neighbor as ourselves. And by this point in his ministry, Jesus had already told his famous parable of the Good Samaritan, in which one of the teachers of the law, one of the Jewish teachers of the law, tries to take that second part of the great commandment and shrink that definition of neighbor down as small as it can possibly go. It says in Luke chapter 10 that he, trying to justify himself, asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Hoping that the definition would become small. And in response to that, Jesus tells the parable about the Samaritan who loves the Jewish man, unthinkable in that day, and he blows the definition wide open. Before we go any further, uh, let me say this about this passage in Matthew 25. Um, Protestant pastors, Protestant churches, like my tribe, who I'm a part of, too quickly dismiss the actual obligation that's here. So let's not, this morning together, make that mistake. Let's not too quickly jump ahead to the Apostle Paul's words about our being unable to fulfill the law and therefore finding our righteousness only by the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus. That's true. That's true. I'll get there in a second. But we first need to see there's actual obligation here. This is actual substance by which Jesus will judge and will separate righteous from unrighteous. These criteria are all actual commands. These are things that righteous people, the people of God, actually do in the world. And so if we run right to Paul's words about grace and we excuse ourselves from this, what that is is to presume upon the grace of God. Knowing that there's a, a righteous way to live, but saying in essence, well, that doesn't really matter because in the end, Jesus will forgive me anyway. The same apostle Paul will say in the book of Romans that by no means should we go on sinning because God is gracious and merciful and will forgive. Paul writes, how can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, if we presume upon grace, if we attempt to use God's grace as, willful, as a willful conscious way to persist in some kind of unrighteous, sinful lifestyle, we prove by doing so that we don't understand grace at all. As a more theologically conservative tribe of Christians, we're really sensitive to this when it comes to sins of commission. So if you were to hear someone rationalize murder or rationalize some form of sexual sin, whatever that might be, by saying, well, Jesus will forgive me, so I'm just going to do this anyway, that would be, for you, most likely an immediate red flag. You'd be thinking to yourself, well, that person doesn't really understand the gospel and doesn't really understand grace. What I want you to hear this morning is that the same thing is true for sins of omission. If you start to find in your own heart yourself thinking, I don't really have to care about the hungry. I don't really have to welcome the stranger. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Now, lest we reduce the whole counsel of God in Scripture... The gospel of Jesus Christ, we celebrate this every week, is a gospel, is the gospel of grace. Not of works or performance. The righteousness by which anyone becomes a sheep and is welcomed into the kingdom of God does not ultimately come from our obedience to laws and commands. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, if it were through doing things like this, Christ died for no purpose. And back here to this text in Matthew 25, that these righteous people receive an inheritance prepared for them. And prepared for them, as, it, as Matthew writes, before the foundations of the world. That means, that presumes there is a relationship that exists prior to this. There's a powerful work of God that has happened in eternity past prior to this. So we couldn't possibly work our way or earn our way into this. 
an often overlooked part of this text is how surprised both groups of people are when they hear Jesus' verdict. Did you hear the surprise? Jesus, when did we do these things or when did we not do these things? And their surprise teaches us two things. First, that they weren't treating Jesus' disciples differently than everybody else. They weren't going, okay, that's a, that's a disciple of Jesus. I gotta treat them right because I'm gonna be judged based on that. They were merely meeting a human need that they had the ability to meet. And second, that these righteous people were not expecting to be given the kingdom of God because of their good deeds. They're surprised by that. Works of righteousness in and of themselves do not earn our salvation. They are criteria for judgment. We read that from Jesus' own words here. They're criteria for judgment. But as D.A. Carson puts it, they are evidential, not causative. They're evidential, not causative. In other words, these good deeds are evidence, the outworking of an entire life that is devoted to Jesus and the ways of God. So this is not, and I hope that you don't mishear or misunderstand this at all this morning, this is not a message of salvation by works. It is, however, a very clear reminder of our obligation to compassion. The sheep, the people of God who are welcomed into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, they are compassionate people. They are people who actually do feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the sick and the imprisoned. And as it pertains specifically to our topic this morning, they are those who welcome the stranger. If we don't do these things, we call into question our very identity as Christians. We presume upon grace, which is to not understand grace at all. We would be concerned for someone doing that, particularly in some kind of sin of commission. We should be concerned for ourselves if we do the same sins of omission. And even more than that, we miss what is an unbelievable opportunity that's held out to us. And so second, let's talk about that, the opportunity of compassion. There's so much that could be said about each of these things. I had to really um, be selective this morning and, and narrow it down. So I'm just going to talk about the opportunities of the specific kind of compassion uh, of welcoming the stranger, of welcoming and caring for refugees. The applications from this text would be far greater than just that, but that's where we'll focus today. Compassion to the stranger opens up really an enormous opportunity for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it opens up an opportunity for us to do that on two fronts simultaneously, both to the recipients of compassion and to anyone who's observing from a surrounding world, from a surrounding society. So for one, it's an opportunity to share the gospel to the recipients of that compassion. About a year ago, a man named James Meisner, uh, who's a leader with an organization called World Relief, he wrote an article that was called The Greatest Gospel Opportunity in a Generation Lost. And in it, he points out some great statistics. I'm happy to send you the link. Just email me. I'll send it to you. He says, he points out some great statistics. He says, unbeknownst to most, the U.S. is actually home to the world's third largest number of unreached people groups. So only after China and India, you find the U.S. Has, is the home to the world's third, most, third largest number of unreached people groups. And what that means is that global mission can happen in our own backyard because the nations really have come and are living here among us. Uh, as the late Nabil Qureshi, um, incredibly brilliant apologist, grew up in a Muslim family, became a Christian. He passed away a couple years ago. But as he wrote a couple years back, for years God has been calling his servants to Muslim nations, but few have answered his call. So God is bringing them here. 
Meisner then, in his article, proceeds to make this convincing, and, and if I'm honest, really convicting for me, case that the drastic reduction in the number of immigrants that have been admitted to the United States over the past couple years, you heard Ellen reference that a few moments ago, that is, as the title points out, the huge lost opportunity for the gospel. Now, whatever you think about immigration politically, as a Christian, your heart should break over that reality. Why? Because based on our understanding of Scripture, based on Jesus' own words here, that drastic reduction includes thousands and thousands of men, women, and children who are Muslim, who are Hindu, who are Buddhist, and who are at present on a collision course with eternal punishment or, or will be excluded from God's kingdom and among God's people. The likelihood of reaching them with the gospel of Jesus increases dramatically in a place like the United States where there's religious freedom and where there's significantly greater saturation of Christians than in these nations from which they come. Now, we've seen this, praise God, in our own backyard and among the people of our own church. And there are people in this midst who were just up in the front a few minutes ago praying with Ellen, like Rachel Sender and Don Finn and the Morehouses and the Millers and the Martins, because apparently if your last name starts with M, you're more likely to be a compassionate person. <laughs> and they're spending hours with refugee families that have come from all over the world and now live here. Think about this. This happened not long ago. Able to share the nativity story with a group of Muslim children on Christmas Eve. You can't go into Syria or Somalia or a place like that and just do that. You can do that here. Beyond that, reducing the number of immigrants that come into the United States also stops persecuted Christians from finding sanctuary here. Meisner points out in this article that in 2016, the U.S. admitted more than 6,400 Christian refugees from these 11 nations that are classified as having the most extreme kind of persecution in the world. 11 nations, most extreme persecution. In the year 2016, we admitted 6,400 of them to the U.S., Christian refugees. In 2017, it dropped 60%. Only 2,700 Christians from those same countries were admitted. So we not only shut the door in the face of the stranger, which we're not supposed to do as Christians, we also shut the door in the face of our brother and sister. And as one who is primarily a citizen of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that should concern us deeply. Why care about all of this? Why care about all this? Because the church welcoming the stranger is not just about entry into a particular nation or state. It's really about the opportunity to enter into the kingdom of God. It always has been. God's heart for the stranger to be welcomed among his people is that they might actually enter his kingdom too. What we ultimately hope is that people would enter, the, not our country necessarily, but this far country, this great, infinitely greater country of the kingdom of God, one whose borders, one whose gates are open to all who would come by faith in Jesus Christ. What can you do? You've heard already some ideas. You can come Wednesday night and learn more. You can personally invest your time in getting to know and loving and caring for refugees who already live here. You'll hear more about that this week. You can also become an informed and responsible advocate for policy reform. So I've personally been hugely helped and hugely encouraged by the work of this movement called the Evangelical Immigration Table. The Evangelical Immigration Table. Happy to again to send you links to, to some helpful resources there. And I would encourage you to take some time, if you're not familiar with them, uh, to learn more about them and the work that they, that they do.
they've put together a statement on principles for immigration reform in the U.S., which I think is spot on, spot on, six principles. Uh, They're calling for a bipartisan solution that, number one, respects the God-given dignity of every person. Amen to that. Number two, protects the unity of the immediate family. So no separating parents from kids. Number three, respects the rule of law. Number four, guarantees secure national borders. Number five, ensures fairness to taxpayers. Number six, establishes a path toward legal status and or citizenship for those who qualify and who wish to become permanent residents. Now, I hope you heard in there the balance of compassion and wisdom. I hope you heard that. Compassion is not throwing all caution and law and money to the wind. Instead, what this group is doing, they're taking these principles and they're advocating for comprehensive immigration reform for three fundamental goals, and here they are. Number one, make it harder to immigrate, to the, to, uh, to immigrate and work unlawfully in the U.S. So in other words, we should actually have laws that make sense and are enforceable and actually enforce them. Number two, to make it easier to immigrate and to work lawfully which unless you know someone that's actually tried to go through that process, you have no idea how impossible that is, how hard that is. It's painfully difficult and it's not at all responsive to even like the U.S. labor market and the demands for jobs that we have at the moment. Number three, so number one, make uh, illegal immigration harder. Number two, make legal immigration easier. Number three, allow those who are currently present unlawfully, illegal immigrants here in the United States, those who are present already here, to earn the chance to get right with the law. In other words, no mass deportations. Welcoming the stranger, whether you agree with those specifics or not, welcoming the stranger creates opportunity to share the gospel with the stranger, him or herself. And here's the other beautiful part of this. At the same time, it creates opportunity to share the gospel with anyone who is observing from our society. And historically, This has been some of the most powerful witness of the church. In the Roman Empire, the earliest days of the church, in the midst of Christianity being this small and this misunderstood and this persecuted new movement in the empire, the the Christians would say to citizens of the Roman Empire, give us your sick, give us your hungry, give us your widows, give us your orphans and your kids with special needs and your daughters that you're about to kill. Give us, we want them, we'll take care of them. And then in the 4th century, as Christianity started growing, the Roman emperor Julian sought to revive paganism. He lamented the growth of Christianity in the empire. And in his frustration at the number of people who were converting to Christianity, he wrote that Christianity was advancing, quote, through the loving service rendered to strangers. And he went on to write, it's a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, that was his terminology for Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us, in other words, Roman citizens, look to us in vain for the help that we should render them. So what if, what if Christians were known for taking better care of refugees than our U.S. government is known for taking care of its own citizens? And some of you have had dealings with the United States government that make you say, like, well, that shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> but, but seriously, what, like, what if, what if Christians were known for taking better care of refugees than the U.S. took care of its own citizens? What if we were known for caring not only for our own, but for welcoming in strangers and caring for them too? 
the kind of gospel advance that might come from that, the kind of revival in the church that might come from that, all because we merely did what we were already obligated to do. I'm sure you probably know this. The impression of our society at this moment is that white evangelical Christians are hyper-nationalistic and xenophobic. That we are the ones, and I say we because that describes me, that's a label someone could put on me, that we are the ones most loudly advocating for either completely closed or immensely restricted borders. Now, I know that's reductionistic, and I know that's a generalization. I know for a fact that's not true of many people who are seated with us together in this room today. But many of your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates don't know that about you, about us. And unless convinced otherwise, what they will assume is that as a white, more theologically conservative Christian, that you, that we are more xenophobic or more inhospitable to people from other ethnicities, from other countries. That's tragic. That's tragic. And if that were just about popularity and about a culturally appropriate kind of argument, it wouldn't be worth the effort to try to, to, try to remedy Okay, so popularity, let's just throw that out the window. If, you, if your aim in this life as a Christian is to be popular, it's only a matter of time, whether it's immigration or sexuality or sanctity of life, it's only a matter of time before you turn your back on Jesus. So not popularity, that's not the goal. It's so much more than that. It's not about the reputation of, of white, theologically conservative Christians, it's about the reputation of the Jesus who we claim to represent in the world. It's about the opportunity for our nation the opportunity for our world, our own neighbors, our own coworkers and classmates to hear and to see and to accurately understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Back to Matthew chapter 25. You, I'm sure you've heard this argument. Maybe you've used it yourself. I've done both. Socially progressive people in our country often argue that we should do things in order to not wind up, quote, on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that? Let's not wind up on the wrong side of history. History is important. It is. I'm so much less concerned about being on the wrong side of history than looking at Matthew 25 and finding myself on the wrong side of Jesus. In our day, you might be labeled completely backward in every aspect of your life. And if you are being faithful as a Christian, you no doubt will be labeled backward in at least some. In at least some. But if in the end, if at this final judgment, the Son of Man seated on his glorious throne, you hear the words of Jesus say to you, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. This is what truly defines the right side of history. This is the consummation of the history of God's redemptive work in the world. There is no right side of history apart from this side of history. So don't ignore wisdom and the law, but Christian, lead with compassion. Lead with compassion. Welcome the stranger because by so doing, you not only display and confirm your own identity as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, you step into the opportunity to share the gospel in word and in deed with both the stranger themselves as well as our society. And I'll close by saying this. During this series, I'm going to reference some writings by a pastor and an author named Scott Sauls. Uh, the main book that we'll, we'll use during this series is called Jesus Outside the Lines. Highly recommend it. It's a fantastic book share more about that next week. Another one of his books is called Befriend. And in that book, Scott Sauls writes this. He says, maybe Jesus cared so much about the alien, the stranger, and the refugee because Jesus was also an alien, a stranger, and a refugee. 
When he was born into the world, there was no room at the inn for him or for his parents. And they were indeed refugees. Herod, the megalomaniac king, having heard the rumor that the Jewish Messiah had been born, ordered a decree for the slaughter of the innocents to purge the land of every newborn male. Mary and Joseph fled with their Jesus in search of other cities, homes, and hearts that had no borders. If you think about that, it will give even deeper meaning to Jesus' words in Matthew 25. Because what does he say? He says, when we welcome the stranger, we welcome Jesus himself. We welcome Jesus himself. And he knows something about being a stranger because when he entered into this world to dwell among us, he was one. And this he did, friends, for you and for many. Living as a refugee, living in poverty, ultimately offering up his own life in our place. That we might actually be welcomed into the eternal kingdom, not by our acts of mercy, but by his one great act of mercy. And we get to celebrate this each and every Sunday before he will sit as judge on his glorious throne. Jesus came among us as our savior. The savior is our judge. The judge is our savior. And so there remains actually another opportunity for compassion. And it's the joy of being surprised on that day that your compassion actually served Jesus himself. The righteous in Matthew 25, they're not surprised that they're ending up in the kingdom. They're not surprised by that. They're surprised that their acts of compassion, small and great, done in the course of everyday life without discrimination, were done as if to Jesus himself. So you and I have the opportunity of using our lives for something so worthy as this. Serving not only fellow image bearers of God, but serving Jesus himself. Can you imagine this moment for the righteous in Matthew 25? To have your life and the way that you spent it, the way that you used your life, so validated, so vindicated by Jesus himself. Friends, all of grace is held out to you by faith in Jesus. So trust in his finished work and not your own. But step into the obligation and the opportunity to use that grace for compassion. Love your neighbor, welcome the stranger. By so doing, you will love and welcome and serve Jesus himself. And on that day, when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, may you be wonderfully, joyfully surprised by how your compassion served not only your fellow man, but even the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, as we prepare to come to this table, we would be so inconsistent, we would lack all integrity to not be people of mercy and compassion, for it is by your mercy and compassion that you have saved us. It is by your mercy and we, we are, according to your definition, your understanding of the world, we are the ends of the earth. And you in your great love and compassion have sent people to us, have sent people to our ancestors, have proclaimed the good news of the gospel of Jesus. You will say to many people in this room on that great day, welcome and come into the kingdom, into the inheritance prepared for you. That is all of grace. That is all of your kindness to us, nothing we deserve. But may we be people of integrity, may we be people of consistency, who live our lives offering, extending that same mercy and compassion which you yourself have offered us. There is no greater picture of it than you offering up your life for us, you offering your mercy and compassion through your own body and blood. 
And so work powerfully even now in our hearts as we prepare to come to this table. Make us people of compassion and mercy. I pray this in your name. Amen.